Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target, where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. Presented by SeatGeek, the best way to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone today and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 16th, 2018. It's the All-Star break, which means the White Sox are off for four days. Well, except for Jose Abreu, who will be playing in the All-Star game on Tuesday, starting at first base for the American League. We'll share our picks on who will win the home run derby and the game itself, but there is a lot to discuss from this weekend's events for the Chicago White Sox. On Saturday, they had the 25th reunion of the 1993 American League West Division winning squad. And for those who are my age in the mid-30s, this team holds a special place in your heart. But there is an important history lesson to learn from that team. So joining us later in the show will be Rob Hart from WBBM Radio in Chicago as he dusts off the history books on how that team came to be and where there are some similarities to the present-day Chicago White Sox. A lot to get through in the minor league report, such as Michael Kopech's terrific start and the return of Eloy Jimenez, and we'll answer your questions in the end for P.O. Sox. But first, the Chicago White Sox enter the All-Star break 33-62 and as they won two out of three against the Kansas City Royals this weekend. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Uh, for the most part, it was a good weekend on the field for the White Sox. Yeah, the Kansas City Royals are exactly what the White Sox need and maybe the only reliable form of enjoyment for the season. Well, they're 10 games down. They have, what, eight or nine left to go? Yep, something like that. I think nine. 
take it in for what it's worth, folks. Every game that the Royals come to Chicago would be a good time to buy tickets to go to those White Sox games. NBC Sports Chicago's Chris Kamka on Twitter tweeted that during Yohan Mikata's 12 game on base streak, he's hitting 356 with a 453 on base percentage and he's slugging 644. That comes out to Mikata has eight walks to 11 strikeouts. And also during this stretch, he has three doubles, two triples, and two home runs. And one from the right side. Jim, are we back to watching Mikata in his April form? I think so, more or less. You know, it's hard to, uh, I guess, form a really solid opinion when you're watching Mankata and you're, you know, the last impression he made or the most recent impression he made is in a Kansas City bullpen game. So it's, uh, you know, when he has that kind of game, three for four, no strikeouts, uh, his first homer is a right-handed hitter. He, when you talk about carrying that into the second half in a, uh, which starts with the West Coast swing against good teams, I don't know about that, but... You know the contact. I think is back. The you know the solidness of the um, you know the line drives are there. It's it's you know the the walks are back. Um, so I mean I, I think the hallmarks of his game, the hard contact and uh, drawing the walks, I, I seem to be more regular even before the Royals were a factor. So yeah, the you know the, I guess he did have the two games without a strikeout. One was abbreviated. The other you know as I mentioned was a Royals bullpen game. So I, I don't know if we can put the contact issues fully behind him. And I think that'll always, you know, as long as he's striking out, you know, 32% of the time, there are going to be times when he looks overmatched and there's just no, there aren't enough balls in play to, I guess, allow him to have, um, you know, or ignore the, um, I guess all the effects of, you know, a bad week or misfortune or what, what have you. But I think, uh, you know, for the time being, you know, hitting bad pitching is part of the game and he's doing that. And, uh, yeah, the, the the approach seems solid. So that, that's why I think, you know, when you have hope for Moncada, it's because he does know what a good pitch looks like. He knows what a bad pitch looks like. And I think that's that's there and it's, it's showing up in walks again. So I'll take that. Yeah, on Friday, being at the game, it was a bit of a surreal experience sitting on the bleachers and hoping that Yohan Moncada would hit one to me, but then watch him walk three straight times as uh, it did show a really good sign of discipline from Mikata, especially from the leadoff spot. It'll be interesting to see, as you mentioned, that West Coast trip when the White Sox head to Seattle and they head to Anaheim on how they're going to attack Mikata. But it is a good sign that Mikata is taking advantage of bad pitching, and he is having a good month in July so far as we're halfway through the month uh, after he had a poor June. Lucas Giolito, he picked up the win on Sunday. He's 6-8 and eight on the season, so somebody might reach 10 wins for the White Sox this year, Jim. His ERA is now 6.18, and a month ago it was above 7, so he's getting that ERA down. And after he threw six and a third scoreless innings with allowing two hits, three walks, and six strikeouts. I, I'm not trying to nitpick too much here because I thought Giolito was good on Sunday, Jim. However, Giolito only had six swing and misses against the Royals out of his 102 pitches. And this is something that people are bringing up to attention when you're especially following the game on Twitter is the lack of swing and miss from Lucas Giolito getting that type of swings from his opponents. Is this a concern for Lucas Giolito not able to generate a lot of swing and miss when during his starts? 
I think it's a concern. I would say my bigger concern with Giolito is his first inning problems. He, you know, of his three walks, two were in the first inning. He had that awful start against Houston that he straightened out. It just seems like for whatever reason, he cannot get started well. And I think that has the tendency to bite him more than anything. Just, you know, racking up a pitch count early, you know, falling behind in a hole and just feeling like you're always scrambling. And I think, you know, that was part of Rick Rick Renteria's praise early on was that he did show the ability to, you know, uh, uh, shrug off a first inning and, um, you know, end up throwing five or six. And that's something Carson Fulmer couldn't do. And that was the difference between the two. Um, you know, but he's, even when he's in his better form and his fastball is more lively, he's still walking guys in the first. And that's, I think right now, my biggest complaint, if he can somehow get off to a better start, um, you know, and then, you know, he has, I guess he scatters his poor innings around more, um, you know, in a more random fashion, like, you know, most major league starters do, then yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pay more attention to, um, you know, swings and misses because yeah, that is a problem when they just don't show up. But, you know, when he's got, you know, six strikeouts, I think, you know, in, in, in some cases, I think a guy like Giolito, uh, when he has, you know, three pitches working, you know, maybe even four, um, yeah, you hope to get some strikeouts looking. So, you know, maybe that's one thing in his favor. Um, so maybe raw swinging missing isn't really, a leading factor, but yeah, those first inning walks are really just what's frustrating because I'm it's it's a little bit tiring to watch Giolito and just think, um, oh great, you know, warm up the bullpen already. Yeah, he was at 49 pitches after the first two innings. Yeah, so for him to get through six and a third is pretty impressive on how he started. When you mention as far as the first inning, Jim, that kind of harkens back to what we talked about just a couple years ago regarding Jose Quintana. Quintana and the White Sox seem to have this first inning issue. Is this creeping back up again, not just for Giolito, but for all White Sox starters, or is this just a solo case where Lucas Giolito is the one that's having trouble out of the gate? It just seems like him because, I mean, uh, you know, Reynaldo Lopez has been fine. Uh, James Shields seems come and go, but that's more about getting hit hard, not walking guys. I think it just, for whatever reason, you know, might take him a while to get his mechanics under control and, and, you know, get his delivery the way he wants to. I'm just kind of looking, yeah, uh, first plate appearance in the game, you know, I'm looking at his splits. Um, yeah, he's got 26 walks to 18 strikeouts the first time through the order. Um, he actually doesn't have a positive strikeout to walk ratio until the third time through. So <laughs> on, on one hand, that's good just because it means like that he has stuff, you know, he has things to show hitters, you know, multiple times through the order. But yeah, that's just... When, uh, you know, when you're, uh, first, you know, that's what, you know, 40 to 60 pitches. It's just, yeah, not, um, yeah, just a bad way of starting <laughs> just playing with fire every single time out. You know, now that you mentioned that make, that does make a lot of sense when watching Giolito starts and why it just seems that sometimes he digs himself such a big hole and just because he does a poor job against the lineup for the first time through be interesting to see how Don Cooper and Lucas Giolito handle that after the all-star break, because I don't know if that's a fixable issue. Is it just sequencing? No, it's just, I think it's just more a matter of control. You know, you know just for whatever reason, he's missing his spots big. He's throwing, you know, a lot, a lot of cases, this, you know, four pitch ball, you know, four pitch walks, you know, it's not anything close. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it takes him multiple pitches. I don't know if it takes him you know, going into the stretch, you know, maybe that helps, but Yeah. Didn't Jeff Samarja have a similar issue when he was with the White Sox, where he was stronger the more times he saw a lineup? 
Yeah, I think he's somebody who tended to save velocity. So, uh, yeah, that, that might be a different case where he just he took him a while to work up a lather. But, yeah, this is just looking at his first inning uh, stats in you know, 18 first innings, or now it's 19, uh, 21 walks. Definitely something to keep an eye on in the second half. So there's two things. One, how are pitchers are going to attack you on Mikata after his good run here in the past 12 games, uh, at least getting on base and being productive offensively as the White Sox head to Seattle and Anaheim and Lucas Giolito as far as what adjustments he can make to be better against the lineup the first time through. In a competitive season, Jim, it'd be worthwhile to discuss how the White Sox could reset the rotation after the All-Star break. Uh, I don't think that really matters here unless do you think that there could be something that Rick Renteria can do to kind of shuffle up the pitching rotation? No, I think, you know, if there were a rotation shuffling, it might be something where they line up, you know, maybe Michael Kopech with Dylan Covey or whoever they think is the weak link or somebody who might, you know, be the most replaceable, maybe getting that lined up. But otherwise, yeah, it's basically, I think, more just a matter of making sure you give everybody the most rest possible, especially, you know, guys like Lopez and Giolito who are pitching, um, you know, highly competitive six-month seasons for the first time in their careers. Yeah, Giolito then, if no changes are made, he's going to have like a nine-day, nine days off Yeah, before his next start. It could be beneficial, though, as you mentioned. I mean, this is their first full-time regular season in the major league. So the more time you give those two, the better in the long run. Now, Sox Nerd on Twitter, great follower, by the way, tweeted that this is the first time, Jim, since 2010 when the White Sox won the final game before the All-Star break. Huh. Progress, Jim. Progress. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, they are Sundays. And, and and especially since the White Sox brought the, you know, 83 jerseys back, I just associate that with disappointing baseball. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that does make sense. <laughs> well, the All-Star festivities, they actually started on Sunday with the Futures game, which was very entertaining if you love home runs as Team USA beat Team World 10-6. to Luis Basabe had a big home run off yeah. Hunter Green, which was a 102-mile-per-hour fastball. Uh, so that's a great bright spot. And Dylan uh, Cease struck out. No, he didn't strike out. He got both batters out that he faced in his two and third innings pitched on Sunday's Futures game. Now, on Monday, it's the home run derby, where we'll see Milwaukee Brewers... Jesus Aguilar, Philadelphia Phillies, Reese Hoskins, Houston Astros, Alex Bregman, Chicago Cubs have Kyle Schwarber and Javier Baez in the tournament, along with Los Angeles Dodgers, Mike Max Muncie, Atlanta Braves, Freddie Freeman, and the hometown favorite, the Washington Nationals, Bryce Harper. I am getting more into the home run derby when it's the event of just enjoying the viewing experience, Jim, with the tournament that they have set up. And, uh, yeah, who do you have winning the Derby on Monday? I would like it to be Harper, just because home field advantage. Um, and I, I, he's got the left-hand swing, and, and the left-handed homers at Nationals Park, you know, with the second deck, with the multiple decks, with the bullpen, or not the bullpen bar, but the uh, the bar up in the, the upper level behind uh, the concourse. I think that just the more dramatic looking homers are hit from the left side there. So I'm rooting for a lefty and, and I'm hoping it's Harper kind of have the feeling it's going to be Kyle Schwarber just because for maximum annoyance. 
<laughs> well, he's got a lot of power. There's no doubt about that. I just... Uh, it's a little weird that you only have one American League guy. Yeah, that's disappointing. I mean, like, in and I think Judge had a bad August after he, you know, he was in the home run derby last year, and but yeah, not having him or Stanton or J.D. Martinez or Mookie Betts or Mike, you know, any of the top, you know, top five home run hitters, really disappointing. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see who does win this. I I think it will be Bryce Harper. Uh, that wins. But that was the one thing that really caught my eye is just that only one American leaguer wanted to do this. Hence why you have both Kyle Schwarber and Javier Baez in the home run derby. Now for the game itself, again, Jose Abreu will be starting at first base. And there's been a lot of questions that have rolled in if he is the worst all-star starter. Uh, no, that'll be Salvador Perez, who is now starting at catcher, can you believe it? <laughs> Salvador Perez is yeah. starting at catcher for the American League. Uh, wow. Anyway, so he. It, it, what's funny to me is on the American League roster, you have all these great players starting, right? Jose Ramirez, the outfield is loaded, Jose Altuve, and the three worst teams in Major League Baseball also have starters with Jose Abreu at first, Manny Machado at short, and Salvador Perez at catcher. <laughs> it's a unique squad the American League has, but I'm picking the American League to win the All-Star game. Is that how you feel as well? Yeah, I mean, based on the starting lineups, I think they have the edge there. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. The, the starting outfield from the National League has both Nick Markakis and Matt Kemp, which I, you know, would not have expected. And, you know, they're both having, you know, good enough seasons. You know, it's just odd seeing those names there, so... I'm hoping so. Although I'm, you know, when with Sal Perez starting, and given how, you know, watching the Royals play and watching him, you know, in the centerpiece of that lineup, I'm just like, yeah, maybe shouldn't have him starting. I, I don't know if I like the a team's chances when he's a starting catcher for a team this season, based on the way the Royals are performing. Now watch, he'll win the uh, All Star MVP. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Tuesday. Oh, man. Well, with it being the break, I also figured that this would be a good time to possibly give ourselves an opportunity to change our minds about preseason picks. Now, I went to Twitter and I ran some polls to ask you, our fans and listeners, who do you think will win each of these races? And starting in the American League East, it is going to be a dominating topic, and I'm sure both teams are going to try to load up as much as they can before July 31st. Who will win the division, Boston or New York? I'm going to stick to my guns, Jim. I'm going to stick with the Yankees winning this American League East, even though I'm not very confident in that pick. Who would you pick right now as we enter the All-Star break on who will win the AL East? I'm going with the Red Sox. Yeah, they just look complete. They do, which is still surprising me that their starting rotation is holding up as well as it is. 79% 79% of our fans also agree with you, Jim. They went with Boston. Uh, American League Central, we could skip over that division as it's pretty much clinched for Cleveland. Mm-hmm. In the American League West, I think Houston's going to win this. I think the more intriguing race, though, is who is going to end up as the second wild card because the way that things are pacing, whoever doesn't win the American League East, it'll be the team will have the number one spot in the wild card, either Boston or New York. The second wild card right now it's Seattle, but Oakland is starting to catch them in the American League West. So right now, who would you 
Who would you think would win the second wild card, Jim? Seattle or Oakland? It seems like it's more Oakland just based on Seattle's generally snake bitten luck when it comes to you know, trying to get in October. Uh, I am curious to watch Oakland as buyers. You know, we haven't seen that for a few years. Uh, I think since, I think it was the Royals um, wildcard game, um, you know, and, and they added Samarja and Hamill. And and I think that was the last time they added, um, you know, meaningfully. So, you know, I don't know if this means that they're contending again, that this is an upswing, you know, that they're, uh, you know, Billy Bean is going to buy into it or if there's going to be kind of just another, dismantling that kind of kneecaps the team after the season. So I'm curious to watch just because, um, you know, there is power there. You know, it's, it's kind of an uneven team. They have a great bullpen. They have a lot of power kind of reminds me of the brewers and the brewers are, you know, doing all right. So, you know, maybe that's a recipe to win. Um, so yeah, I think I'm leaning Oakland. I'm leaning Oakland as well. The other interesting thing about that year with the Oakland athletics is that they also acquired John Lester. Yes. By trading Jonas Cespedes to Boston. Yeah, that was that was the other one I was thinking of. What a weird deal that ended up being. Does anyone in Oakland have a John Lester jersey? <laughs> or at least a yeah. jersey? That would be Not after that wild card game. Oh no, no. Uh Seattle is nineteen games above five hundred gem. Their run differential is negative two. How do you yeah. how do you explain that? <laughs> Yeah, just one-run game luck. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. And Oakland right now is plus 24. I mean, it, plus 24 is is not a lot. Um, but right now, Oakland is just three games back of the Seattle Mariners, eight games back of Houston in the American League West. And I think, yes, Oakland would be actually leading the American League Central if they were in the AL Central. Yeah, yeah the Mariners are 26-12 and 12 in one-run oh games. Oh, boy. That's... Uh, that's impressive. I don't know if that's something that's sustainable. 62% of our fans and listeners actually went with the Seattle Mariners, Jim. So we are in the minority for that race. Uh, but it will be interesting. Maybe that's a possibility where Joaquin Soria or James Shields, some of the White Sox assets, can go to Oakland as the White Sox and the Athletics have made several deals in the past few years. Moving over to the National League, I think the National League is going to be more exciting with these postseason races, Jim, as how the first half of the season has shaped up. In the National League East, I can't get a good feel on who's going to win this division between Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Washington. And I feel this division could be impacted the most based on what happens prior to July 31st. So as we enter in the All-Star break, who would you place your bet on winning the division? Yeah, it's a good question. I think Washington is going to be, I think, my team to watch. You know, I, I like watching Max Scherzer. It seems like they're underperforming, and they could be like the Dodgers who got off to a terrible start, and now they're in the driver's seat in the West. So I feel like the Nationals have that kind of burst in them. I, I think they're under some pressure with Harper, you know, going to, into free agency, um, you know, after the season that Mike Rizzo feels compelled to do something. Um, the, the one thing that's kind of fascinating about them, and it could be the case, you know, that, you know, s- switching managers and, and Davey Martinez now there. And, and, yeah, I think there's been some friction. There's a players only meeting and, and Martinez kind of said, yeah, it's about time they had a players only meeting. It was kind of unusual, uh, reaction. And, you know, that for years, Martinez was considered a highly qualified managerial candidate because he was Joe Madden's right-hand man. And, 
you know, never got the opportunity and any other reasons for that, whether it was, um, you know, whether it's just kind of a minority's uh, obstacles getting into a managerial seat because you know, a lot of these, um, you know, jobs were going to handpick guys, you know, who were either from the front office or like, you know, guys with no experience like Robin Ventura and Mike Matheny and so forth. Um, you know, so there was, you know, but also there were some, you know, kind of uh, rumors that he was just not a great interview. Like, you know, they just never came away impressed by him. And then, you know, that kind of started a discussion about whether, you know, interviews mattered. But so far, I think, you know, based on the way they played so far and, and, their, and I guess the, uh, yeah, I guess the, the, what's circulating around the club, it seems like, you know, maybe this is kind of a manifestation of just people's hunches about how, you know, he would work as a manager. And also, you know, they have the Adam Eaton factor, which, you know, kind of <laughs> makes me wonder if, you know, there's some kind of, you know, he wasn't around last year uh, because of the injury, you know, maybe there's something there. <laughs> just, you know, watching him with the White Sox, that any team he's on just has the tendency to never get over the hump. My pick is the Philadelphia Phillies. I, I think they're going to be able to outlast because I think they're going to win the Manny Machado sweepstakes. Yeah, that's that would be a game changer. Yeah, I, and I think this is how petty I think Baltimore is. I I think Baltimore is going to trade Manny Machado, and I think they're going to trade Manny Machado as soon as they're done with the All-Star game. And I think if Baltimore had their preference, if all of the offers were equal, Jim, from all of the teams that are in the race, and there's word that the Yankees are on Machado – there's word about the Brewers, the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Brewers and Dodgers could really use Machado as well. And the Phillies. And I think Baltimore is so petty that they would want they would pick Philadelphia over all the other teams just so they could screw over the Washington Nationals. Because the bad blood between Baltimore and Washington over television deals and territory sharing, wow. Wow. If yeah. you, you take a moment for White Sox fans, take a moment and read about this because there's more bad blood between the Orioles and Nationals organizations than the White Sox and Cubs. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's gone to, I'm not sure if it's gone to official court or gone to MLB um, <laughs> trying to you know, come down with a ruling on it. But I'm just, you know, when it comes to the Phillies, I think my enthusiasm is, enthusiasm is just slightly suppressed by that starting rotation. I'm just not quite sure, yeah. you know, whether, you know, Aaron Nola can hold up, you know, because he's topped out at 168 innings and uh, Vince Velasquez and so forth. So, I mean, it's I like the Jake Arrieta move just to provide innings and, and durability and, and Nola's, you know, the the real deal so far. I just I, I hope that he holds up over 32, 33 starts. It'd be interesting to see what Atlanta does because they're the team in this division that has the prospects to make a big move. We'll see if they're ready to make any moves or they just decide, let's see how long this lasts into the season. 54% picked Washington. So they agree with you, Jim, that Washington has a spurt in them. Moving to the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers are fading, Jim. And they're not hitting and they're not pitching well, and the bullpen is taxed. And I keep saying this about the Brewers. They needed to get another starting pitcher. They didn't do that. They ignored the issue, and now look what's happening. The bullpen is overtired, and they're not effective. The Chicago Cubs have now passed the Milwaukee Brewers. They are in first place by two and a half games. And asking who will win the National League Central, 
55% say the Milwaukee Brewers. I don't know if it's just people that want to stick it to the Cubs whenever there's a pole gym. Uh, but I think this is the not, this is the Chicago Cubs race to win, and I think the Cubs are going to pull away. Do you feel any different about the National League Central? Yeah, I uh, I agree with you that, that it looks like the Cubs division and you know Mo- what's happening in Milwaukee is what I fear happening with Oakland. You know, just the same combination where the power runs dry and then all of a sudden uh, starters aren't getting the game to, or uh, I guess either that or the offense isn't providing enough opportunities for the low leverage relievers. And so the, uh, the important guys get taxed, but I, you know, so going back to the ALS, I think it is a matter of this recipe working against Seattle's general misfortune when it comes to trying to contend. So, but uh, going back central, yeah, it just seems like the Cubs are, you know, and the Cubs are in the lead without everything working for them. You know, it's not like they're, they're playing, right. you know, flawless ball and they're getting, contributions from everybody they normally get them from you know there there are opportunities for them to get better or at least offset slumps with guys who have been you know more or less disappointing for the bulk of the year yeah the trade rumors right now for the cubs are that they're interested in brad hand the reliever from the san diego padres i think that would be a good move from them but you're right jim chris bryant has been dealing with a shoulder issue anthony rizzo has not been good this year offensively for the chicago cubs Javier Baez is carrying a lot of weight. So is Albert Omora. Kyle Schwarber is having a bounce back here. Wilson Contreras is having a good season as well uh, behind home plate. But yeah, this is not a Cubs team that's hitting on all cylinders. And when they do, and I think that they will at some point, they're going to leave Milwaukee in the dust. And I'm going to be disappointed on the way that the Brewers handled this. And I think this is a good lesson for Rick Hahn to learn from. When you have a young team like this and you are in a position to make big moves and they made big moves, but they made big moves in the outfield where they already had quite a bit of talent in the outfield and you ignore an area of need just because you think that the guys that you have there are adequate enough. It's they weren't adequate enough and it's going to hurt them not only last year, but this year as well, because they're going to be in a thick of a very tight national league wildcard race Uh, because moving over to the national league West gym, the Dodgers are in first place, but right now you have four teams within four games. You have the Dodgers, Diamondbacks, Rockies, and Giants, and you got San Diego Hayden in the background. And asking who will win the National League West, fans, 67% said the Los Angeles Dodgers. How do you feel this race is going to go in the National League West? Because as I mentioned, we, we talked about three teams in the National League East. You and I both agreed that the Cubs are going to run away with the National League Central. And you have the Rockies, Diamondbacks, and Giants floating around and still within striking distance of the Dodgers. You add that up, that's six teams that theoretically are going to compete for two wildcard spots. How do you see that playing out? I kind of like the Diamondbacks a little bit. Hmm, okay. Just because, um, you know, when you look at the way the Dodgers have done it and, you know, Clayton Kershaw not being fully operational, you know, he did have a good end to the uh, first half, so he had that working for him, but... It just, I don't quite know if he's going to be around. Like, I, I'm not sure how to feel about his, you know, I, I think if he's, you know, misses a, a chunk of the second half, I think that really hurts, you know, for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, just, it's um, a hard team to kind of get a handle of when you look at, you know, uh, the thing is just their resources. They're so deep. And even when, you know, like, you know, how they get Matt Kemp working? <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> 
who's Max Muncy? Yeah, just I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like Chris Taylor, you know, it just, they, they find these guys are able to get great performances out of them. They have, um, you know, homers all over the place. So, I mean, I like their power. It just, um, but the Diamondbacks have been tough too. And, you know, they had, a you know, talking about, you know, guys like Anthony Rizzo, they had Paul Goldschmidt who wasn't doing much. And now he seems back. So, you know, it seems like they're, and they're looking to add too. So, I mean, there's somebody who could be changed by, um, you know, second half. I think Patrick Corbin's pitching really well. I think, you know, Granky is more or less Granky. You know, so there's, they have pitching just, uh, I think I'm leaning towards the Dodgers just because they're so deep you know, just, and, and they get these random performances, but I do like the Diamondbacks for one of those wildcard spots. I still like the Rockies. I don't know why. You know, I do know why Nolan Arenado, but yeah. <laughs> the bullpen isn't pitching as well. I don't know what they're doing with John Gray. And I hope the White Sox are not in that situation with Michael Kopech in the near future of, I don't understand why they sent John Gray down to AAA. I thought that was a bizarre move. But, you know, the Rockies, despite not playing all that well at home and struggling offensively at home uh, compared to where they typically are, they're still six games above 500. They're 51 and 45, two games back of the Dodgers. Uh, I I do like the Diamondbacks pick in the wild card. But I I think at this moment, I don't know, man. I'm feeling the Nationals are not going to make the postseason, Jim. Yeah, no, it's entirely possible. And, and like you mentioned with Machado, it's, you know, that could be what they need because they're not getting much from shortstop. You know, it just starting pitching is really my concern with Philadelphia. But yeah, Colorado is one of those teams I just don't trust to get out of its own way, uh, which, you know, <laughs> I, I do. I do like them. I mean, I mean, they're I would call them my National League team. Um, but yeah, just uh, it seems like just the way they're run, the way they kind of prioritize things. I just don't trust them, I suppose. My mind would change if Milwaukee were to acquire a high-end starting pitcher, but I don't know of any high-end starting pitchers that have been made available this month before the trade deadline. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the Cardinals for the other wild card. I'm going to stick with them. <laughs> Mike Matheny is gone. If they didn't fire Mike Matheny, I'd give up on him. But well, So that was going to be my last question in this segment because I'm sticking with my World Series pick of the New York Yankees and Chicago Cubs. I think that's looking strong. But I, I do worry about your Astros Cardinals pick. Not the Astros part. I, I think that's a strong pick in the American League. But in light of St. Louis firing Mike Matheny, which, let's face it, overdue, uh, I think it's only fair to give you the opportunity to reset your World Series pick. So if you could pick another National League team to replace St. Louis, who would you pick? Probably the Cubs, but I still think I'm going to go with St. Louis. Just because, right. <laughs> uh, like, this seems like, you know, when you read everything about Matheny with the Dexter Fowler thing, and now this, uh, you know, I think what might have been the last straw was the Bud Norris. I don't know if you saw that story. Yeah, that, that was, that's a crazy story, Jim. Yeah, like, yeah, just if for people who didn't hear about it, Bud Norris, I think it was the athletic that had it. Um, you know, he's, he's, you could call him a throwback. You know, he probably use worse words than that, but you know, he's somebody who, you know, has been on record before of, of being somebody who, um, yeah, I think he kind of came into notoriety by saying that, um, you know, Latin players and international players need to abide by American customs when they're playing baseball in the States. I think that was, that that's kind of how he, you know, this, this kind of that's old right. school, you know, however you want to shine it up, uh, you know, came into, um, you know, public knowledge and and so 
Um, you know, he's in the Cardinals bullpen. He's been a, a decent closer, especially since Greg Holland's been disappointing. You know, Norris has been good, but you know, he's bounced around a lot. And for whatever reason, he's taken it upon himself as a veteran to harass Jordan Hicks, you know, the, the flame-throwing righty who's, you know, a rookie and, you know, just constantly on Hicks about, you know, whether he's on time, whether he's preparing. whether And, and it sounds like, you know, the way Norris said it, you know, he's a veteran looking out for a rookie. The way Hicks put it, he didn't want to talk about it. It sounds like the way, yeah, I'm guessing the reason why the reporter asked about it is because he sent some discontent. And Mike Matheny, you know, he basically backed Norris saying that, you know, and, and it sounded pretty bad. And, and, you know, when you compound that with Fowler and his problems, it sounds like just the, a toxic, it may be a clubhouse that's only fit for a very specific kind of player (laughs) and uh and those players you know you know given the way they're performing and in the way they haven't been able to get it going and the way Matheny had yeah he probably should have been fired a couple years ago it seems like it was overdue but yeah it was just a bizarre situation so hopefully you know my hope is that you know with this kind of overhaul they're doing that uh maybe the Cardinals yeah this is the case where a manager does matter and that's enough to get him into the postseason and be my surprise ambush wildcard pick that makes it the World Series. I think they're hiring Joe Girardi after this season. I think that's where Joe Girardi is going to come back into Major League Baseball and manage again is with St. Louis. The Cardinals are yeah. currently seven and a half games back in the Cubs, by the way, in the National League Central. And it seems like that could be a good fit because, I mean, Girardi is used to expectations and um, I guess he had the... Yeah, he had the uh, reputation of being no fun himself, but he did integrate a whole lot of young players into the Yankees lineup without a problem. So it seems like Mio, perhaps like he has a Buck Showalter softening a little bit to where, you know, he's not that Martinette that, um, you know, drives people nuts. Maybe this is the, uh, you know, maybe the year away, um, you know, allows him to adjust. But yeah, no, I can see that. And it makes a lot of sense. So you're sticking with the Cardinals. Yep. All right. I admired, I admired that stubbornness, Jim. And I'm still sticking with the the Yankees and Cubs. Should be very interesting on how the season plays out. Because, like I said, the National League is far more interesting in the playoff race right now. Where in the American League, it feels like you have a really good idea that four of the five teams are already in place. As we still have 70-plus games to go with Seattle and Oakland battling out that last wildcard spot. Now, coming up next, we'll be joined by Rob Hart as we talk about the history of the 1993 White Sox team as they had their 25th reunion this past weekend. Um, But while that was a cool moment, Jim, on the field to see all of those players come back, you wrote about one particular player who wasn't there, and that was Robin Ventura in your Sunday morning piece. Are you disappointed that he didn't show? I am disappointed, but... um, just more for the circumstances, not like personally disappointed in him. But, um, and I'm, I'm trying to look it up on, you know, go through my mentions real quick. Cause somebody did point out that it was his birthday. Um, yeah. Mike locks on Twitter pointed out to me that it was his birthday and I did see that, but didn't connect it. And, you know, maybe that's the reason why he was out of town, you know, traveling, but, um, based on the way he left, you know, the, his exit interview with the white Sox and the way he hasn't surfaced since in any kind of meaningful way in baseball, it seemed like he just, wanted to get away from it. And so, you know, when this 1993 re- reunion came up, um, I didn't expect him to be there and he wasn't in any you know, part of the conversation. And um, 
you know, it makes sense that he wouldn't want to. And I, I wouldn't want him to come back and get booed, like even like a partial crowd, you know, booing, because that's not the reason why they're there. You know, they're, they're there to celebrate the player he was in 1993, not the manager um, that he was. So I'm hoping that, you know, and, and as I wrote about, that this rebuild just, you know, allows everybody to be able to turn the page, whether it's, you know, you know, fans or front offices or, or you know, just, you know, where you're not judging, you know, you know, Ventura on, you know, what he did. You're thinking like, this is a team that even Ventura <laughs> could get to the play playoffs. This is the kind of, um, you know, roster that has no, you know, nothing here reminds me of Robin Ventura's team. Nothing reminds me of, yeah, Chris Alcott and the jerseys and Drake LaRoche and you know, all these disappointments. They're just, it's a completely independent entity. And so the next time that Robin Matura shows up or is any kind of, um, you know, club event, um, people look at him and say like, he was a hell of a third baseman and not, you know, he was a, um, you know, manager who shouldn't have managed. How long do you think we have to wait for that? Five years, 10 years? Uh, probably just the first exciting postseason team the White Sox have. Okay. So five years. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, folks. I'm hoping it's a lot sooner than that. As Jim and I, we will reconvene for P.O. Sox. But coming up next is Rob Hart about the history of the 1993 White Sox and if the present day team is following a similar path. Before we speak with Rob, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. I use SeatGeek all of the time to buy tickets, especially for White Sox games. I just used SeatGeek for this past Friday evening as the White Sox took on the Kansas City Royals. Got a great deal for Section 107 for six tickets. And what I love about using SeatGeek, I love their deal score. It makes it really easy to find the best value and get the most bane for my buck on every ticket purchase. Every purchase is 100% guaranteed, so you don't have to worry about fake tickets. And I'm not the biggest guy uh, as far as printing out my tickets. I like having the tickets on my smartphone, which you can have that option. And they just scan your phone, making it really easy to get into the stadium. Best part for Sox Machine listeners who haven't used SeatGeek yet, you can save $20 off on your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. So download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Use promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off on your first purchase on SeatGeek. The Chicago White Sox held a 25th year reunion for the 1993 American League West champion squad. And for those that were born after 1993, yes, American League West champion squad. It was great to see all of the former White Sox players like Big Hurt Frank Thomas, Blackjack McDowell, of course, Ozzie Guillen, and Tim Raines were there too. The 1993 team is my first love, and I'm sure a lot of White Sox fans, especially my generation's first love. As the White Sox, when I was eight years old, I watched those damn Blue Jays beat them in six games in the American League Championship Series. And then let's just forget about what happened in 1994. When looking back in the history of the Chicago White Sox, the 1993 White Sox success didn't just happen 
overnight. It was a crescendo of a plan that started back in the late 80s that led to this division title and a trip to the ALCS. History does repeat itself, and hopefully, could the current White Sox be following a similar path is the 93 White Sox. Well, join us to take a trip down memory lane is news reporter and anchor for 780 WBBM in Chicago. It's Rob Hart. And hello, Rob. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, happy to be back and happy to be talking about 1993, even though it's kind of crazy to uh, think about it in terms of being a, a quarter century ago. It doesn't, in my mind, 1993 doesn't seem like 25 years ago, but the calendar, in fact, says it is 25 years ago, which is uh, somewhat hard to accept. But uh, I, I think you put it uh, correctly that uh, for a lot of people who are of our generation, the uh, people who were uh, born in the late 70s into the mid-1980s who uh, may not remember the 1983 team or definitely doesn't remember the 1977 team, uh, this is the team that kind of pulled us in to White Sox baseball. I mean, this is, uh, you want to call it, call us the new Comiskey Park generation. Uh, we're the ones who are actually, uh, at least I am, uh, from watching uh, the old videos from 1993 and from the early 90s. Um, I found myself uh, nostalgic for uh, the original new Comiskey Park design and all of its uh, blue seat, uh, white paint, flying saucer glory. And uh, it's kind of amazing how when you see all this old video, uh, uh, Hawk, when he was 100%, uh, uh, the, the, old, the, the old original design of the ballpark, uh, the uh, 93 uniforms that didn't have the uh, names on the back, you see all of that and all those uh, pleasant memories, or in my case, of being 13 years old, uh, came flooding back. Yeah, a lot of blue. A lot of blue at the new Comiskey Park when it was finally opened. Where does this 1993 White Sox squad, Rob, stack up against the all-time White Sox great teams? Well, I mean, this is going to be controversial uh, for, for a couple. Obviously, it doesn't come anywhere near uh, 2005. Um, I think it definitely slots ahead of 08, which was a, a complete surprise. Um, and it slots ahead of 2000, which I think was also a complete surprise. And uh, this may uh, disappoint um, a lot of the uh, uh, a certain faction of the fan base, but I'd put him ahead of 1983 because 83 was just a case of, of catching lightning in a bottle. Um, it was it was a team that uh, rode a two, an incredible two months of baseball into the playoffs and uh, was unable to uh, uh, make that happen again. Uh, 1993, they did get into the American League uh, Championship Series. They took it to six games. And uh, if not for uh, the labor stoppage in 1994, they're probably in the postseason at least again. So this was a team that was built to last and uh, had had the strike not occurred and uh, created all of the kind of financial constraints that the team put on itself uh, afterward. Uh, probably could have had a sustained run of success. Now, this story for the 93 White Sox, in a lot of ways, starts back in 1987, doesn't it, Rob, when Larry Himes took over as general manager from Hawk Harrelson? Yeah, it, it does start then. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's much has been written, I would say by me, about, uh, about the, the Hawks' tenure as the uh, general manager in 1986. But 
that what happened with Hawk, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, he didn't have any truly uh, terrible moves. He didn't have any truly great moves. He had one trade that was a clunker, which was uh, 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 Bobby Bonilla for Jose De Leon. He had one that was like the steal of the century, which was Yvonne Calderon for a player to be named Leia for, for the Seattle Mariners. And the rest of his moves were pretty much meh. But it kind of disguised the fact that they that they had built up this tremendous minor league system uh, throughout the uh, late 70s into the early 80s. If you read a lot of stories about the team at the time, uh, they talked about the great depth that the White Sox had at the minor league levels. Then a lot of these players uh, came up to the big club in 85, 86, and 87 and just simply didn't perform. And you you could call it a rebuild, uh, kind of, uh, because they had a lot of high draft picks that didn't do very well in the American League West in the uh, late 80s. But it wasn't a case of, uh, like what the White Sox did beginning in 2016, where they started selling off uh, highly desirable uh, major league assets to bring an immediate infusion of major league talent into the system. Uh, what happened was, was that Larry Himes drafted really well. Uh, starting with Jack McDowell, then you go through uh, uh, Robin Ventura, you get Frank Thomas, uh, you trade away Harold Baines at the uh, deadline in 89, and that was considered controversial at the time. I mean, my God, he was the biggest star the team uh, had, uh, and and to uh, to soften the, the PR blow, they immediately retired his number, and he was still playing. <laughs> Uh, they had a Jersey retirement ceremony for him on his first trip back with the Texas Rangers. But the talent they got back from uh, from Texas uh, was uh, Sammy Sosa and uh, Wilson Alvarez and uh, Scott Fletcher, who was probably the most major league ready player of the bunch. And um, by uh, by 1990, that was starting to bear some fruit. The pitching staff showed up first. And uh, the 1990 White Sox, which, uh, you know, final season in Old Comiskey Park, uh, actually, they were in a pennant race with Oakland all the way to the end. Uh, they, they won 94 games. And um, that, you know, you're talking about uh, when did you kind of get sucked into the White Sox? I mean, obviously, you know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, you have the, um, uh, the, the, the territorial tie to the team. But, uh, you know, for me, 83 was a thing that people insisted happened. I mean, we had 83 uh, AL West championship uh, T-shirts and stickers and stuff. But I don't really remember that happening, you know, personally. Uh, 1990 was the first uh, pennant race that I could really tune into. Uh, I was, going, I was a, a, a proud graduate of a Chicago public uh, elementary school, Sutherland and Beverly. And that was back at the time when they had um, the straight A perfect attendance tickets and uh i i i rarely missed it i rarely missed time in grade school so you always got these free tickets from the white Sox. and i remember going to uh a game at comiskey june of 1990 uh, the oakland a's are in town uh first place is on the line the place is absolutely packed and um you know you you could see you know the, the white Sox were battling uh but you're going up against an, a superior oakland a's squad in every way, but it was obvious at that point the White Sox had arrived. That they were start the the the, the players that they had acquired uh, were were starting to really uh, show some promise. They showed up and delivered at the major league level. And then you get to August of 1990, and then they bring up Frank Thomas, and he's absolutely just amazing 
all the way to the end of the season. Uh, Robin Ventura you know, went through some a lot of struggles in 1989 to uh, become a productive player. So I think people thought that they were poised to be a very competitive team in the early 90s. And I, I posted this uh, uh, a couple of days ago on, on my own uh, Twitter account, was a screenshot of Chicago Tribune from Christmas Eve of 1990 when they trade for uh, Tim Raines. Now, I don't know what the media yeah. landscape was like back then or what, how, how fans communicated with one another, but let's just say Twitter existed then. Let's just say White Sox blogs existed in 1990. Uh, and all of a sudden you find out uh, through the usual uh, baseball rumors channels that uh, the Sox are about to land you know, their own version of Ricky Henderson, uh, I would have been ecstatic had I understood the uh, the implications of uh, what they were trying to do. So they, you know, they, the, the core that they had drafted was starting to uh, show a lot of promise. They can compete at a major league level. And in 1991, they began to add. And that process continued through 1993. Yeah, those draft picks, as you mentioned, Jack McDowell, Robin Ventura, Frank Thomas, and Alex Fernandez, for White Sox fans, if you want to know what the bar is, like the highest bar to achieve draft success for Nick Hostetler, this is the bar. Those four players in their career accumulated 186.6 wins above replacement. That is insane. And what's always crazy to me about this story, Rob, is that Jerry Reinsdorf ends up firing Larry Himes despite all the success that he had with the draft. And even though the team is being built up after the 1990 season, and by the way, Larry Himes is the last GM that Jerry Reinstore fires, so it's been 28 years since he's fired a GM. And he replaces Himes with Ron Schuler. And the 91 White Sox finish 87-75, and 75, and that also ends up being Jeff Torberg's last year as manager. Enter Gene Lamont as manager. Why do you think Schuler and Lamont were able to win a division when Himes and Torberg fell just short? Well, I mean, in 1991, you still had, I mean, that was kind of the, the end of the Tony La Russa, Oakland A's. I mean, the, in 1990, the A's get to the World Series. They lose to Lou Pinella's uh, Cincinnati Reds. Um, 91, uh, you have the Minnesota Twins. That's their last uh, World Series championship. Uh, 92, it's Oakland again. Um, and that was kind of the last hurrah of that Oakland A's team. And by 1993, uh, you're starting to see, you know, those, those AL West uh, stalwarts uh, starting to show their age. I mean, this, you know, the, the twins, you know, that was a core that came together in 87. So we're talking about, you know, Kirby Puckett, that team. Um, the uh, Canseco left the A's in 1993. Uh, uh, there was a story that Jack McDowell always tells that when uh, – uh, Oakland was about to blow it up in 1993 that uh, that Mark McGuire really wanted to play for the White Sox. He wanted to hit around Frank Thomas, and that deal did not come together for for whatever reason. And then, you know, Seattle was still a couple of years away, and, and Texas was kind of middling, uh, but they were, you know, a couple of years away from their own playoff appearance. So you had two of the, the big guns start to fade. Uh, you had the White Sox that were uh, on the ascent, and uh, keep in mind this is the last year of the of the AL West or the the AL West as constituted in uh, in 1969 because um, they go to the three divisions plus a wild card starting in 1994. 
So you have you have the the big guns in division fading. The White Sox are on the rise, and uh, you know they they shot past uh, Kansas City in uh, I'd say June of 1993, and then held off Texas the rest of the way, and uh, they clinched in late September. There was some drama though in 1993, the breakup with Carlton Fisk. And I remember that Gene Lamont's seat was pretty warm as the 92 White Sox were even worse than the 91 White Sox. They ended up going 86 and 76. There's really no progress being made since the transition from Jeff Torberg to Gene Lamont. And I remember you can go on YouTube. There is a game in, I believe, late August or early September between the White Sox and Twins. And I love watching that game because Frank Thomas has a huge home run and I remember the ESPN broadcast where John Miller and oh, I'm forgetting his name. Was it Joe Morgan then? Joe Morgan, yes, the Joes. Yeah, uh, we're talking about that. Gene Lamont seat was getting a you know is hot that the White Sox have contemplated firing Gene Lamont, and sure enough, 31 games in the '94 season when the White Sox started poorly, Gene Lamont gets fired. How did the White Sox overcome these two pressing points? And still win the division. Because as you mentioned earlier about the Tim Raines transaction, and I agree with you, we would have we lost our damn minds after the Tim Raines trade. But we would have also been really, it would have been really interesting if Twitter existed with the breakup with Carlton Fisk. And I am sure there have been a lot of fans, kind of the way that sometimes Cubs fans are with Joe Madden, uh, being frustrated with Gene Lamont. How do the White Sox overcome uh, those two issues and still win the American League West? Well, I mean, there, is, there, there was a lot of... It's interesting to, to see how um, games were covered kind of in, in the days when it was, it was just the newspaper guys and the radio guys and the TV guys. And, and it, it's like there, there are so many more dimensions to baseball coverage today compared to 25 years ago because going into uh 1993 like looking at the coverage of like leading up to Sox fest that year um you know they weren't talking about how you know this this team was on the rise and it was getting ready to it's it was still looking for that playoff appearance every all the coverage was about carlton fisk um he was he was late in signing his contract and I think they were just the the goal was to just keep him around uh, so he could break um, uh, Bob Boone's catching record, which happened in in late June of 1993. And it was pretty obvious uh, when you're watching that game that it was going to be his last game at a White Sox uniform. That um, and, and and you might remember that you, you've if you see. Uh, back in the days when they had the uh, the history montage on the scoreboard, uh, the 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 shot of of Fisk on his motorcycle riding around the warning track that was from from that ceremony in in June of '93. Then they go on a road trip. He's released in Cleveland, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's how how could you how 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 could this team uh, release a guy when they're out of town um, <laughs> on the road and I think what happened was Fisk was told he was being released. He got in the street clothes. He went into the stands, uh, hung out with the guy in Cleveland who hits the big drum, and then uh, went and said his goodbyes to the player uh, ch- players uh, talking over the bullpen fence. 
so that was that was a, a relationship that kind of came to a sour end uh, after after 12 years. And it took some time for both sides to mend fences. But, you know, you had that, um, you know, the, the, the Gene Lamont relationship as it was going on was kind of uh, contentious. I mean, obviously he gets them into the playoffs in 93. Uh, they're in first place in, in 94. And it seemed like uh, as the 1995 season was getting underway, of course, it's it's shortened because of the strike and they open in late April um, that they were, his seat was incredibly hot. And of course, you know, they launch him in, in, in early June of 95 after a, after a, a very disappointing start to the season, but you know, none of that was his fault. I mean, if you look at the numbers from, from 1995 compared to 94 and 93 uh, over the course of the strike, they trade away Jack McDowell because they didn't want to resign him. Um, Jason Bray, who was the big revelation in 1993 and 1994, is uh, unable to regain his form in 95 and in subsequent years. Uh, and and all that kind of early 90s promise, you know, dissipates by by August of 1997 when they do the white flag trade. It just goes. I mean, they they get in there. I mean, they have superior talent. Uh, they had a you know, they had they had divisional opponents that. Um, uh, they were clearly the best team of the division in 1993, and uh, then they get to the they get to the ALCS and they they run into a team that's just full of future Hall of Famers. I mean, they, uh, it, the fact that they took it to six, and and I went to Game Six at Comiskey Park. It was freezing that night in October of 1993, and they were still competitive until uh, until uh, the the Blue Jays just demolished the bullpen and uh, went on to the World Series. But that that night, first off, that '93 ALCS was weird from the word go, uh, because you know, Michael Jordan comes out to throw out the first pitch, and then uh, a lot of rumblings amongst all the reporters who were there that Michael Jordan was retiring from basketball. And there was like, what? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, that's the I, I can't even imagine a, a, a political equivalent of something like that where you have you know, the biggest name in sports throughout the world uh, announcing his retirement uh, just as the White Sox are about to play their first uh, uh, playoff game in 10 years. So that, that, that was just a strange experience. And I think it probably threw everybody off. And, you know, they were down, uh, down by two games going into Toronto, they pull even then, you know, Jack McDowell didn't have a good series that year. I mean, he, he, he got torched in game one and then got torched again in game five. And, uh, you know, Toronto goes ahead and, and wins it in game six. Yeah, that ended up being the difference because in game one, the White Sox were able to rally. They had a 3-2 lead after the fourth inning. But as you mentioned, McDowell gets torched and they end up losing game one. Uh, that Yeah, you were right. That that series was weird. It just felt like the road team was going to win each game after game four uh, on how it started off. I believe that series was also in CBS to really date ourselves, Rob. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was, geez, was that, that might've been the last year of the CBS deal because in 94, um, uh, NBC and ABC were going to team up for something called the baseball network, Yes, uh, which, which kind of died as a result of the strike. But I think by, by 1993, I only, I only know this, um, 
because I read the book The Late Shift, which is about the uh, Letterman-Leno feud to take over The Tonight Show from Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the David Letterman negotiations, uh, one of the CBS executives said, this is not going to be the baseball deal again, is it? (laughs) Uh, By 1993, it was pretty obvious that the network had overpaid uh, by a lot for the uh, for the baseball rights. So I think the CBS was more than happy to uh, get a, get out of that deal and uh, walk away from baseball after 1993. Finally, do you see a similarity between how the 1993 White Sox came to be, starting with a rebuild, let's call it that, from 1987 into 1990, and the White Sox start making their rise to the present day White Sox? Well, you got to always like trace to where does the rebuild begin? Um, in the case of, of 1993, it starts in 1987 um, or, or, or 1988. Uh, let's just let's put it right there. So it was a five year process from when they really began acquiring assets to when they were able to get into the playoffs. Um, so right now, if you want to peg the beginning of the rebuild as uh, uh, December of 2016, when the Chris Sale and Adam Eaton deals were executed, uh, we're still early along in this process. But uh, it can speed up or slow down, as we have seen, uh, based on the progress of the, the players who are supposed to be big components of the rebuild. And as we saw in in 1990, uh, to use a <laughs> to use a Rick Hahn phrase, um, in 1990 the the players they acquired really forced the issue and made them made them competitors. You know, Jack McDowell was good in 1990. Uh, you know, Alex Fernandez. You know, came he was drafted that year. He was on he was on the big club in a matter of months. I mean, he was on the on the Chris Sale uh, trajectory. And he showed up immediately and began delivering results. Frank Thomas showed up immediately and began delivering results. Others, uh, like Wilson Alvarez, took some time to, uh, to, to, to find it. I mean, in 1993, Wilson Alvarez was demoted for a little while. He came back and was outstanding in the second half. So, you know, the, the, the progress of the rebuild, uh, like it was in the case, like it was in the early 90s. I mean, if, if, Let's say you come back from the all-star break and, 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 and players are, are completely different or, or, if, or whatever is inside their head that needs to click, clicks. Um, uh, you can start, you know, you can adjust your timetable accordingly. I mean, I, I've, I, I've been looking a lot. If you really want to uh, you know, look at a rebuilding team um, that exists right now that's doing really well, look at the Philadelphia Phillies. They were in the same situation. Uh, they almost had the same record uh, that the White Sox did at this point last year. And if you look through their archives, you look through uh, uh, the Good Fight and, and Philadelphia Phillies blogs, uh, they're, they're, they, they were saying the same things that we are today. Uh, we got all these prospects. What the heck's happening? Uh, they come back in the second half, and they're a 500 team uh, because all of a sudden everyone began to perform. So it's it's uh, the 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 timetable of the rebuild you know really depends on the timetable of the uh, people you need to to pull this thing off. 
It's it's not a it's not a hot take or a particularly revolutionary one, but you need the good players to be good, and that's what happened in 1990, and that what needs to happen in in 2018. You can listen to Rob Hart throughout the week on 780 WBBM AM in Chicago and also on Radio.com. And you can follow Rob on Twitter. He's at Rob Hart WBBM. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, sure, no problem. Welcome to the Minor League Report. Let's start with the Futures game played at Nationals Park on Sunday to kick off the All-Star festivities in Washington. The U.S. team beat the world team 10-6, but both White Sox prospects involved came out as winners. Luis Alexander Basabe turned around a 102-mile-per-hour fastball from Hunter Green for a two-run homer, and he also threw out a runner at second base. Dylan Cease retired both batters he faced in the ninth inning, including Fernando Tatis Jr. Cease's fastball set at 98. In Charlotte, Eloy Jimenez returned from the disabled list and on the earlier end of the timetable. Hopefully that's supposed to be interpreted as a reversal of fortune for prospect health and not an invitation for Jimenez to get re-injured. He went 2-for-5 with a double while DHing on Sunday, so, so far so good. Michael Kopech definitely looked healthy Saturday night, striking out 11 batters to just one walk over six innings and throwing a whopping 70 strikes out of 96 pitches. At least for one night, he'd put his control issues entirely out of the picture, and it's the kind of outing that forces the issue in Rick Hahn's parlance. Whatever the case, he won't have Carson Fulmer in his way, because it appears as though the White Sox are finally shifting him to the bullpen. He made two one-inning relief appearances this week. One went well, the other didn't. Down in Birmingham, Jimmy Lambert finally gave the Barons rotation some positive news. One night after Alec Hansen departed after three innings with what might have looked like a forearm issue, Lambert struck out 10 Tennessee Smokies over seven innings of one-hit ball. The fifth-round pick from the 2016 draft now has a 3.13 ERA with 28 strikeouts to just six walks over 23 innings at Birmingham. And it's what the Barons needed considering Dane Dunning is on the shelf, and Hansen doesn't look like his old self yet. Hansen is set to make his next start, so there's that. In Winston-Salem, Gavin Sheets continues to be one of the most confounding White Sox prospects this season. He went 4-for-4 four four on Sunday to raise his average to 292, but he has homered in just one of his last 37 games. It doesn't seem like Blake Rutherford should be out slugging him by 50 points, but that's what he's doing, although that's partially a testament to Rutherford's progress. Pitching-wise, 2017 draft picks like Blake Battenfield, John Park, and Lincoln Hensman have all been tested by the promotion to Winston-Salem. Tyler Johnson, on the other hand, is still dominating. He struck out 15 batters to just one walk over 10 innings in his first seven games at high A. In Kannapolis, Carlos Perez has taken a lead in the three-catcher race this month. He's batting 474 in July, going 18 for 38. He's still oriented towards putting the ball in play, with just three walks and 22 strikeouts over 51 games this season, but at least there's a hit tool. Conversely, Evan Skaug is 3 for 43 with 19 strikeouts since the All-Star break, which is an 070 average. Luis Curbelo has slumped at the plate this week, with just three hits over his last 24 at-bats. The good news is that his defense has calmed down. After committing 10 errors in 20 games at third base, he's booted just three balls and 17 starts at shortstop. In Great Falls, Corey Zangari is clubbing the snot out of the ball. He enjoyed a two-homer game on Tuesday, then followed it up with a three-homer game on Friday. He's slugging 696 in his first 15 games of the season after missing all of 2017. In the Arizona Rookie League, Nick Madrigal and Steele Walker were finally in the same lineup for the first time on Saturday, as both of their starts were delayed due to injuries they tolerated during the College World Series. The AZL White Sox are still stuck on a league-low two homers, and it's unclear who will provide pop if and when Madrigal and Walker advance to A-ball. 
And finally, there's the Dominican Summer League, where the DSL White Sox are 5-31. That's it for the Meyer League Report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the show and SoxMachine.com by signing up to become a friend of the podcast on Patreon.com slash SoxMachine as Jim Margulis and I reconvene to answer your questions this week. And Jim, the first question comes from Ted Conley IV. And Ted is asking, where does Luis Basabe rank among White Sox outfield prospects? Has he overtaken Blake Rutherford? I think uh, Basabe has overtaken Rutherford, and, and you know they're both 21, and you know, Basabe is more advanced. You know he's uh, playing center field in Birmingham, whereas you know, Rutherford looks more like a corner outfielder, and you know and and Basabe's got the edge and power in defense. Rutherford's got the better hit tool, so I think at this point you kind of go with the strengths. You know the the kind of stuff that you know speed and and, and center field defense can't can only be taught so much, you know, or developed so much. And then it just comes down to, you know, physical abilities. And I think Basabe hasn't beat there. Um, you know, Basabe Saka was really just due to, you know, the, the way it sank was just due to last year. And when he had the knee surgery and the White Sox talked about how he was playing through it, um, you know, it did allow you to take a, uh, you know, look at him and kind of give him a contingent grade on, you know, whether this sporting season he had last year was just a, young international signing hitting a wall in high A or whether it was somebody who, you know, had performance left to give. And so far, I think, you know, Basabe is in that latter category. So I think I would give him the edge when it comes to, you know, now when it comes to kind of ranking him, you know, at, compared to the other outfield prospects, I think, um, you know, he's Eloy, you know, yeah, uh, you know, far and above number one, um, you know, there's, there's really nobody compares to him, but I think, you know, now that Roberts, you know, hurts and, um, you know, still hasn't gotten any kind of regular reps in professional ball, you know, I think, you know, Basabe has a decent case to be in that second, uh, spot behind, uh, Eloy. Really interesting. I mean, he had a terrific outing in the futures game. He threw out a base runner and he had that monster home run that we talked about earlier in the show. Definitely raised some eyebrows. I mean, he's been one of the most improved prospects in 2018 for the White Sox. And hopefully the energy that he was able to build up from the Futures game carries over to Birmingham, where I know he's had a little bit of struggles uh, adjusting to double-A life, Jim. Uh, but he's also had some moments as well with the Birmingham Barons. It's just a matter of more consistency, right? Yeah. And, and you know, it's just, um, you know, 21-year-old at uh, Birmingham. That's great. Yes, it is. You know, str- struggle away. <laughs> I think, yeah, if he has a bad, you know, month and a half, you know, or, you know, to finish out the season there, you know, no big deal. He's 22 next year at, you know, it'll be his age 22 season at double A. He's still ahead of the curve for prospects. So, well, Ted, great question. Thank you so much for submitting it. Our next question comes from Johan Dabrinsky, Jim. And Johan is asking, any idea what happens with Daniel Polka and Nikki Delmonico after the break? Who loses out on playing time? Maybe even someone else. And I'm glad that you brought up 
maybe even someone else. Because looking back at this weekend series, Jim, Daniel Polka, he had a good weekend. He was 6-for-11 with a home run and three runs batted in. And he also had a double. He only struck out once. Someone that I was expecting to have a good weekend but didn't is Matt Davidson. He was only 2-for-8 with three strikeouts, no extra base hits. Now, DeMonico obviously is in Charlotte with his rehab and may suggest that he's close to coming back with the White Sox. But as we stand at the All-Star break, Daniel Polka has 12 home runs and his slash line is 234, 280, 468. Matt Davidson has 14 home runs and is hitting 221 with a 330 on base percentage and he's slugging 438. I think Delmonico is going to be added back to the White Sox roster. But I'm really curious to know on how the White Sox are going to handle Daniel Polka and Matt Davidson. What are your thoughts about this impending situation? Well, my thought is that I really wish you could combine Delmonico and Polka into one player. <laughs> if you could give uh, Delmonico's <laughs> approach and play discipline, his ability to hang in against both uh, you know, righties and lefties, and then you gave him Polka's power, even if you know neither has defensive tools you want. I think that's a incredibly useful player. And, and I really wish we could have that, uh, I guess it would be um, uh, picky Paul Conico. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. How about just Daniel Delmonico? I think that rolls off the ton very well. Yeah. Dan Delmonico. Yeah. It's, but uh, yeah. Picky Paul Conico. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, without any kind of, you know, morphing uh, <laughs> technology. Um, yeah. I mean, and then you have, I, I think, you know, very realistically you could have, you know, Elo Jimenez around the corner and maybe Avi comes back. So, I mean, you know, those could be your corners and then what, what do you have? So um, yeah, I think with Polka, you know, given his age, given his power, I, I think there is some reason to, allow him to see if he can somehow tame, you know, the wildness in the swing, you know, just the, uh, you know, the, the 280 on base percentages, just because the, there is a lot of swing and miss and a lot of, um, you know, especially early in the count, getting the bad counts cause he's aggressive and they've been able to turn that against him. But, um, yeah, I think Davidson might be running his course. Um, you know, the plate discipline is still there, but I, I, you know, I don't know if he's as much of a threat to where, um, you know, pitchers are attacking a bit more and he's not quite squaring it up. So, you know, that might be the case where, you know, he learned a new trick over the off season, took a while for pitchers to catch up to it, especially Royals pitchers. But, uh, you know, now he's kind of figured out. So the DH will be fascinating. And, and I'm, I guess I'm skeptical most of Delmonico at this point, just because of the hand injury when he already wasn't showing power. I, I guess I wouldn't mind seeing him option to Charlotte just to get him at bats and see what kind of power he hits with there and see if he can, you know, get the ball out of the park at Charlotte. Cause I mean, he's got to hit homers just with his defense. You know, if he's not hitting homers and, and not really even challenging the warning track, then uh, he's not much of a player just because he's so bad defensively. So uh, I think that would be my, you know, given Polka's age and given, you know, the reps he had in Charlotte already the season and uh, the way he can hit the ball of the park, I think I'd rather have him get major league at bats than, a hampered Delmonico. I w- yeah, I think Tolson's kind of in the same spot where, 
you know, there's Polka where, you know, he's been around a while and, and especially his tools, um, being a center fielder with speed, you want to, you know, try using that while the player is still young. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. And especially with Leori, as long as Leori's healthy, I think that's kind of the thing, um, to take advantage of, you know, cause you know, given his health record, he might not always have somebody who can slide over to center field and handle it. So I think while they're both healthy, yeah, I wouldn't mind that at all. And then just trying to spread out his bats as much as possible. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm still giving Delmonico a chance in the long run, but just the way he was not stinging the ball. Yeah. The, just the, uh, you know, the lack of great contact. I just don't know how he'll bounce back with a hand injury, but you know, I wouldn't mind seeing him get a shot either just to see, you know, where he is as a player. I think for me, the leash is much shorter for Nicky Delmonico, or at least my leash for him is much shorter. Just because there's a lot of offensive talent that the White Sox, well, I shouldn't say a lot of offensive talent. You have guys like Daniel Polka that's kind of come out of nowhere and demonstrating that they can hit for a lot of power. And yeah, they can't walk as much as Nicky Delmonico, but if, if Nicky Delmonico can't scare opposing pitchers with any resemblance of power, uh, they're going to challenge him. And if he's not hitting for more power than let's say Charlie Tilson, then I'm sorry. I think you got to go with Daniel Polk, especially for those DH at bats, because uh, obviously neither guy is a starting left fielder and that starting left fielder for the White Sox. I think as soon as he displays that he's healthy and is more consistent offensively, or at least getting back on track, he was two for five today, Aloy Jimenez, uh, that spot's for him, and I think the White Sox need to see him in mid-August in left field. So the clock's ticking, no matter how the White Sox want to use Nicky Delmonico. Yeah, Delmonico is younger than Polka, though. <sighs> yeah, I, I guess. So he's got that going for How him. much younger? A year. Oh. Well. Polka hits the ball far, so, and it's more entertaining. And if this White Sox team's going to suck, I'm going to go with the entertaining option. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'd be interesting, though. It's a great question, Yohan, and it's definitely something that Rick Hahn is going to have to handle. Yeah, it looks like maybe after the All-Star break, because Nicky Domonico is already in Charlotte taking at-bats, and he's going to continue to get work during these four days off, while Daniel Polka... Uh, said on the broadcast after the game that he's going to be hitting up all the beaches in Chicago. So if you'd like to meet Daniel Polka in person, Monday through Thursday, uh, head to the Lake Michigan coastline. You will probably run into Daniel Polka as he's partying it up. The next question we have in our mailbag for P.O. Sox comes from Sox Nation. And Sox Nation is asking, Jim, will Chris Sale win the Scion? And how should we feel about it if he does? Well, he's definitely the front runner. He's on pace for a 10-win season according to uh, a 10 a win above replacement season according to uh, baseball reference, which is yeah, easily a Cy Young season and I think with Kluber getting knee injections that you know might indicate that the Indians will take it easy on Kluber, um, especially if they're able to to cinch up the division, you know, with most of September remaining, then I think yeah, they might be able to um, yeah, Kluber might miss some starts just to um, you know, rest him up for October baseball. Um, you know, Verlander's a threat. Bauer's a threat. Severino's a threat. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to keep him honest the way that Kluber kept Sale honest and over and eventually overtook him last year. But I would like to see Sale win a Cy Young just because he's, he's got six top six finishes in a row, which is nuts. You know, like, I mean, that's a, that's a Hall of Fame peak right there. Um, and, and, you know, a Cy Young would just be, I guess, 
pleasing. It just, you know, get so close all this, you know, all these times never win it. It just seems like, uh, you know, one of these years he should have gotten it. So it just seems like it'll even out and, he, and he'll be a Cy Young winner the way his talent, um, deserve that label. You know, it just, you know, happen to be beat by one pitcher, random pitcher every year. It seems like, you know, it seems like you should be able to call Chris Sale a Cy Young winner. Um, but really, you know, it comes down as we talk about with Sale and such, and, and I guess his, um, success with Boston and how it translates or how it, you know, you might consider it transferring over to Chicago if you're still around. It really comes down to September and October and how he pitches then. And cause I mean, with the White Sox, the way they were built, uh, they needed every single start they could get out of sale. And as we've seen, as we saw time and time again, and as the Red Sox saw in their first year with sale that, you know, September, he was vulnerable, got beat up. Um, the numbers got away from him and, and he, didn't fare well in his one postseason start. So it seems like, uh, you know, that's kind of the, um, you know, the last frontier for him. And I think that's really the only way um, the White Sox can maybe regret the trade is if Sale really finishes strong and has, you know, you know maybe not entirely great postseason because all it takes is one bad start to ruin a postseason numbers, but just, you know, having a great September and having, you know, one good October start. I think that's really the one thing that would make you think like, well, you know, the White Sox couldn't figure it out, but Sale had it in them to pitch a complete six-month season and have something left for the postseason. Um, but, you know, watching him pitch for the Red Sox last year didn't give me the same, you know, didn't give me the regrets, didn't make me think the White Sox made a mistake just because, you know, we saw that. We just saw that, you know, when you have to get every single start out of them, you know, it's not a recipe for sustainable success. So, um, but I'm rooting for him. I want him to make the Hall of Fame. I would like to see, you know, another plaque with Chicago AL on it. And, you know, Sale is maybe one of the couple that could do it, you know, off the top of my head. Is he the only one? Well, you know, it depends, you know, on the cap arguments. And so, you know, he's really the only one who has a cap. <laughs> You know, there could be a player who, uh, you know, kind of makes a stop over in a Hall of Fame career, you know, gets it that way. But, you know, when it comes to having a cap argument. Yeah, I don't think he'll be picking the White Sox cap. <laughs> That's just. Oh, OK. Well, we're seeing. Right, right. This is Pete Chris Sale, and I agree with you, Jim, that I think Chris Sale is on the path of being a Hall of Famer. And I think by now, he should have already won a AL Cy Young. So if he does win, I will be very happy for him. I do wonder if there will be a sect of White Sox fans that add more pressure to Yohan Mikata and Michael Kopech and I guess we could throw in Luis Basabe to be, you guys have to perform because we traded, the White Sox traded away a AL Cy Young for you. You three have to produce. Would that be unfair? No, but I don't think it changes the expectations all that much for Moncada, especially. It seems like if he's just an average player, that's going to be disappointing, even if Sale doesn't win the Cy Young. And I think, you know, there is a right to do that just because when you trade a guy like Chris Sale, you know, trade, you know, somebody who's that valuable, you know, an automatic all-star, automatic Cy Young finisher, you know, it's, 
you're trying to get, you know, the, the great value he provides is that he provides all that value from one roster spot rather than two or three. And that just gives you so much more freedom and to experiment with roster spots and, you know, allow guys to grow into, especially like say starters, the innings he throws, innings the bullpen doesn't have to cover. And, you know, then another starter can, you know, be introduced. And if he goes four or five on a fairly regular basis, it's not the end of the world. You know, that's the kind of value he provides and the amount of cover he provides. And I think yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a testament to how much the White Sox screwed up that rebuild that they couldn't do anything with that. And, you know, that he was expendable. But no, I, I think when it comes to the trade, I think one of Kopech or, you know, if Kopech's a star, then that takes the pressure off Moncada. But I don't think... You know, until then, I think Makata is, you know, the lead of the package and, um, you know, he has to be, he has to be an all-star, maybe not like an uh, annual all-star, maybe not like the Robinson Cano possible Hall of Fame path, but just, you know, somebody who is always in the conversation. Our next couple of questions are for, for your questions. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like Jim and I to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine and help support the show and the website by visiting patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up to become a friend of the podcast where your donation every single month Uh, Not only gets you extra content from the podcast where you get the opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions that we answer and only release those questions to our Patreon subscribers, but also an opportunity to ask questions to our guests and also get those answers straight to other Patreon subscribers. Also this week, Jim, you're doing something special with the Patreon subscribers that you'll be writing posts all week based on their suggestions. Yes, it's the all-Patreon all-star break. So the uh, the generous supporters who are on our highest tier, uh, the the $5 tier, uh, yeah, thank you for your support. But you know, kind of with um, you know, a blank slate you know, for the all-star break, like you know, the White Sox aren't contending. We don't have to worry about them adding at the deadline. We don't really have to worry about any kind of high stakes trades like with Jose Quintana. There aren't any kind of, you know, white knuckle storylines. So it kind of allows to step back and say, like, what do you want to see? You know, what's on your mind? Uh, you know, uh, big picture things. You know, how does the organizational depth, depth chart look? Um, you know, how's the rebuild going? Um, you know, all this kind of stuff that just been on your minds. Uh, got a lot of good suggestions. So every day we'll have a Patreon request turn into a full length and potentially overly wordy post. I look forward to that. And if you would like an opportunity to make suggestions and again, get additional content, not just from the podcast, but from writing as well. Again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And as Jim mentioned, thank you guys so much for your support through the first half and into the all-star break, despite the White Sox team not being very yes. <laughs> good and or interesting at times. We greatly appreciate everyone that has stuck out this season. I promise you that things will get better with the Chicago White Sox and hopefully soon. And then we'll look back at 2018 and laugh about this and hopefully have a moment in the sun like we all did when the 1993 White Sox won the American and nobody will yeah nobody will accuse any Sox machine supporters of being 
Sox machine bandwagoners. <laughs> Very true. Very true. We will survive 2018. We will survive the season unless you die. But that's just morbid. And that's something that Dan Zaborski would say. But anyway, yeah, let's go back to 1993. 1993. Thank you guys so much for listening to this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, you could subscribe in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store and search Sox Machine. You can also listen to us in Spotify and Google Podcasts, where you can now use Google Assistant to say, hey, Google, play the Sox Machine Podcast. And guess what? It'll play it. You can also listen to us at audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. Your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. One programming note with the All-Star break, we will not have White Sox wake-up call until this upcoming Friday as the White Sox will be heading to Seattle. We'll cover that preview on this upcoming edition of Socks Machine Live that you can listen to Thursday evening on the stream or on the recording on Friday morning. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.